Welcome to episode 156 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined by my dear friend Courtney Owen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm so good right now. You don't even know. And I think you're good because we are not in France anymore. We are is that, not is in that pretty much right? That is pretty much right. Yeah, uh, Paris and I, if people know if you're fans of this podcast for all the years, you know that every year, the two, three years that we spend in Paris are a little brutal. You pretty much are, but you're out of there now. Yes. A little bit, your bag's a little bit lighter than they were when you left the place. Also but, true. Uh, but so be it. We'll get more into that, I'm guessing, <laughs> in the rant rave. Yeah. But right now, let's look back on the French Open that was. I guess, what will you remember most of all about the 2016 French Open? I'll start. I'll remember the rain and the ennui and the misery of it all, which seems cruel, um, considering there were, you know, champions who were very worthwhile champions, very deserving champions, and very interesting champions, and champions whose wins move the stories forward in interesting ways and create new subplots and whatever, but it was just kind of, like, miserable being there, as being on the ground for the whole time. It, it was, was one of the least fun Grand Slams I can remember. And it wasn't even like there were, like, with the exception of the injuries to Federer and Nadal, um, it wasn't like there were negative stories, per se. It wasn't like Australia, where it was like, oh, match fixing, oh, da 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 this one was just sort of just like the elements conspired to make it suck. Yes, absolutely. And um, I mean, look, there are two things that a tournament can't control. That is weather and that is results. You can't control if somebody's a top seed's going to lose or Rafa hurts his wrist or whatever. So obviously some of the early results of the, the first week that we talked about, you know, had definite impact on everything. But that being said, you know, the weather, I think, it's almost like the Australian Open the year where it was, like, so crazy hot. Yeah. I still remember, like, when people mention Australian Open results, I have to do kind of a quick mental check and be like, oh, was that, like, the crazy year with, like, the insane heat? And where I remember... Frank Dancevic was, like, hallucinating. Yeah, and I got really sick that year. Remember, we were staying at the, uh, the, the, the coffee bar. The, the, coffee the milk bar. bar. Yeah, the yeah. milk bar. And I got incredibly ill that year, like, like feverishly ill. Uh, the heat was insane. I still remember the headlines. I still remember the photos of Sharapova with the ice on her head because she had to play that match against Karen Kanap um, through the insanity. Uh, yeah, it was nuts. And, um, you know, I think that this French Open will go down a little bit like that insofar as, like, we'll remember the rain before we get to the results. Uh, which isn't fair to anybody, but it was it was it was tough. And I think the entire press room, the players, everyone really felt there was never a day that you opened the door except for that one day that was hot. I think it was like a the first Friday, Friday maybe. first Friday, yeah. where you walked out the door and you're like, yay! Like I'm gonna go, you know, cover the tennis today. Every day felt a little bit like you open. You looked outside and you're like. Oh, gosh, I'm going to get wet again, aren't I? How do I avoid the rain walking to, to work? Like, and, I think, sort of thing. and I think it sort of cuts to what the soul of tennis is. I mean, tennis, at its heart, ten- we're not warriors in tennis. We're, <laughs> we're really not. Soft. We're really not. And, but but same, as, same with the sport, same with the fans. I think the Parisian fans certainly fit this to a T. This is not a Lambeau Field type atmosphere that you get uh, where the Green Bay Packers play in five degree weather and blizzards and it's cool and it's or part of pride and it's part of the toughness. Like, just like the pride of sitting the... in the rain on Henman Hill. Like, no. like even like for the ten... French Open in particular right. compared yeah. to the other three slides. Tennis is a sport that was basically designed or became popular as a way for Victorians to have something to look at while they picnic. And other people not in Victoria, but continue. Right, but no, that's pretty much right. And so that is, in, in some ways, that remains. I mean, like any sport, like any country club sport, especially if you want to call it that, tennis exists to be sort of a nice way to spend the day outside. And I, I, obviously there's real sport and real competition and real heart, whatever, that goes into the rest of it. The game has evolved the culturally. Game has evolved, it's right. become more professional and all these things, but, but at its core. And it still <laughs> is this, like, style, like, leisure thing. And so it you just wear feels... wear suits to watch it. Women wear heels wears, and hats. Exactly. And the players wear these, like... You know, sh- short sleeve shirts and shorts and dresses. And Things so are not you, supposed to be athletic gear. And, right, and when you, and so when you see a grand a grand slam final where Serena Williams is in like a zip up all the way up and like leggings and pants, it's just it, I don't know. It's just something about it. This is ridiculous, but like visually, it looks wrong. It doesn't look like what we're used to. Of course, Serena. She tried. She started the match without yeah. the, the, the cover the jacket, off, the yeah. jacket on because we haven't really been able to see that dress, which is great. It has, like, the cutouts and all that sort of stuff. I like it. I like the color and everything. And then, like, after, I think, the first changeover, she's like, yeah, get my hoodie. Yeah. <laughs> it's code. 
I was wondering if that was a plan, if like Nike wanted some photos for the final or something. I don't know, but whatever. I wonder if she would have taken. If she had, like was going to serve for the match, I wonder if she would have taken the jacket off Ooh. again. That would have been metal podium. Style. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we will see. It, it's uh, yeah, it, it's not great on that front. Just from having lived it, that's what we try to show you guys. Is what it was like on the grounds. Everybody was just kind of in a foul mood the whole time. Yeah, everyone was so cranky. Um, so that part was sort of amusing in some ways, but not always. Uh, but then the winners in the end are pretty noteworthy. Let's get to them first. Do you want to talk about Gardenia or do you want to talk, to talk about before, Novak? Before we do either, I do just want to set the scene. We're at a pub. Yeah. So the music. Music and turned on midway. Yeah, exactly. I hope so it sounds okay. I'm sure it sounds fine. But just so that people know, yeah. it's uh, that's what's going on. We're here. in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. We're hey. in Scotland, and I'm excited. It's gonna be pretty I've cool. I've always wanted to come here, Amazing so I'm really excited. Here. Yeah, I, I was I was telling Ben the other day, like, I Scotland was one of those places where I always knew I would enjoy it, I, so, and so in, because of that, it, I never felt like going, like, I just knew that it was, it was, it's like the, like, how I haven't seen The Wire. It's like, I know that I will like The Wire when I watch The Wire, but then I don't really have, because I know it's, it's comforting yeah. to know it's there. So yeah, I'm, that's true. I've never seen Titanic. And you think you're going to like it? No, I'm not sure about that part yeah, of the equation. No, I've never been to Tokyo. Maybe that's the same thing for me. That's true. Yeah, that's let's true. go with that. But anyways. Okay. So, yes, Garbina Muguruza. Um, pretty darn impressive little run she had here in Paris. And uh, number four seed going into the tournament will rise to number two, or is number two at the moment that we're recording this, after beating Serena Williams 7-5-6-4 in the final. Beats uh, just really mowed down the field, dropped the first set that she played to Anna Karolina Schmidlova, and then didn't drop a set for the rest of the tournament and uh, I remember getting a text message you know after the women's final where it was like really? Serena got fewer sets off Garbina than Anna Karolina Schmidlova? It's like ooh that's a burn I mean, yes because Garbina got better as the the tournament got better and you were pointing to a moment uh, that really keyed in how well she was playing to you in her quarterfinal against Shelby Rogers Shelby actually got closer to winning than Serena did uh, Shelby got a set point at 5-3 serving in the first set against 5-3 5-3 or 5-4, I'm not sure. I think 5-3. 5-3, I think. And Shelby served and played the point well, and Garbina just, like, went for it. Yeah. Just, like, with instead, instead of waiting for this underdog to miss, instead of waiting for, which might have happened, she was assertive, she stepped up, she swung freely. She took ownership. Yeah. She, she took control, you know, kind of, like, control of her own destiny. It's like, I'm going to swing the racket, and if it goes in, I'm going to save that set point, and if it doesn't, then we go into a second. We figure it out. But, but I trust myself to be I able to do it. I trust myself, yeah. and that was such a huge moment for me. I just remember sitting up in my chair, and as the point was being played out, I, I think I turned, maybe I was sitting next to Greg Garber at ESPN, and, and I turned to him, and just I just kind of started blurting out. I was just like, oh my god, she went for it. Like, I was genuinely shocked which is why I still remember that set point. And then after that, I just really, I was like, oh, that's your mindset now. Like, it was a total change in mindset for Garbina, um, and it was a veteran move. It really you know? was. And it was, yeah, it was absolutely sort of fearless thing. The thing that people talk about with Serena and Venus for their whole careers, when they're under the most pressure is when they play their best. And when they're on backs against the walls and they're at their most dangerous. And she showed, obviously... She won her first Grand Slam. She's nowhere near that pedigree, but it was a flash of that that I think was intriguing. And yeah, she was someone who... And we saw it again in the finals. Not squanders. They were on Serena's serve, but has a look at four. And then, like, you know, they step up. You're like, oh, she gonna get broken. This right. is this. I've seen Here this comes pattern. Serena. Here comes Serena. We saw it against Kerber at the Australian Open final as well when Serena broke. And you're like, here comes Serena. And then the player somehow stepped up. And in Australia, I felt like Serena let herself down. The second time that Kerber was serving for it, uh, or, yeah, uh, the way that match ended, I feel like Serena had the momentum and let it go. But against Garbina, I feel like Garbina just took it. Um, And, you know, there's so much to like about that mentality. You know, it's a mentality that you have to think is going to get her far if she commits to it. And she's only going to improve. And she's 22 years old, just the second woman born in the 90s to win a major, joining Petra Kvitova, who's won two. Youngest since uh, Victoria Azarenka at the Australian Open. Like... You know, the numbers kind of tee up to being like, this is a, we're looking at a multiple slam champion, and the game shows that too. And we thought that before. I mean, I think this was the breakthrough, but I remember we had a discussion, I think, late last year about who next first time slam champ would be. I picked Garbinier. I was wrong because it was Kerber. But I mean, (laughs) but, but, I mean, Muguruza is in there, and I've seen this, I think, really since the 2015 Australian Open when she played Serena so tough in that fourth round match, I want to say, third or fourth. Fourth, I think she played the chance. Yeah, fourth. 
Um, just a few months after rail, was, just right. blowing past. I mean, like you know what I mean? Yeah. Like she didn't she, go away. She believes that she, she can she stand plays, up. For her. Exactly, and she has this sort of big stage mentality, this belief. This maybe you can call it a little bit of um, uh, I don't know what the word is. Confident, definitely confidence, maybe to the point of cockiness sometimes. I mean, there are people who some press who think she's you know very you know like a diva or sort of like full of herself in some way. But that comes from a place of confidence and self-assuredness, which is a good thing if you want to be uh, picking champions. You know? I agree with that. To have, to have this feeling like you're not, like, she's not insecure about her tennis. She's not doubtful. She's not, oh, I didn't believe that I could, but then I surprised myself. No, no, no. She was not surprised with this title. That's part of why, actually, I think her, weirdly, her, like, champion speech, I found kind of weirdly flat, because I felt like for her, there wasn't a moment of like, oh my god, I can't believe it. It was like, yeah, it was kind of supposed to happen. Yeah. The moment when she actually won was like, great. But then the speech, so then she was like, yeah, I, I practiced this script. I know what happens here. Here's where I win my slam. Here's where I beat Serena. And that kind of ownership, uh, yeah, she's very real dealy. And for me, and one of the other things that I'll add that goes off of that point about kind of having the ambition, which she speaks very openly about, that she likes to compete and she likes to play against the best players and she wants to prove that she belongs with them yeah. every single time so one of the things that I think has been interesting is that in the five months leading up to the French Open you had a Garbina who wasn't putting down the good results she wasn't she you know, won semi-final hadn't made a final before you know this one um, had been playing much better than her results would indicate, which we've said before. For sure. And that kind of goes to her whole career in a weird way. I remember, I think it was Ubaldo at the yeah. press conference, asked her, like, you've only won two titles. Why are you winning a Grand Slam? Something yeah. along those lines. And it's true. I mean, she hasn't had a, a huge body of work that would just result, pure result-wise. I guess, Wimbledon final aside. But yeah. I, I think the biggest difference, though, is that these five months compared to, if you flashback last year after Wimbledon, when I sat down with Garbina Muguruza after she made that Wimbledon final, I talked to her in Toronto. She was very, very open about not wanting to slump. She was so paranoid about the Wimbledon final streak because we were in the midst of, of what was happening with Eugenie Bouchard at the time. And you could see it, and she was open about it. She was like, I don't want that to happen, and I'm like freaking out because I don't want it to happen. She had terrible results through the summer, and then obviously picked it up after joining up with Sumik in the fall, and uh, you know, wins, makes a Wuhan final, wins Beijing, makes the semifinals of the finals. Then the year ticks over. The results are still not coming. There's injury concerns at the beginning of the year, so that explains some of it, kind of like a Halep situation. But then like even during the summer, Indian Wells, Miami, you know, a lot of the clay, it still wasn't coming. She never bowed her head. She never felt sorry for herself, and she never felt like she had to apologize for anything. She was like, I'm fine. Like, I'm going to keep working, and it's going to come. The belief is all, you know what I mean? Like, even, it's a different mentality than, like, what you see with, like, a Petra or even, like, a, you know, Simona or Madison or Jeannie it, or Sloan. Like, where when they get on a losing streak, there's almost a sense of embarrassment, Muguruza this year never had that. She had that last summer. And she it, didn't have it I'll this pull year. into even, I think it was Indian Wells where she had like a very uncomfortable to watch like encore coaching thing with Sam yep. Sumick during the match. I think during the match she lost to Christina McHale. And there have been a couple other sort of like testy exchanges with them. And I remember asking, I think it was, I don't, know if it, I don't think it was me who asked her. Somebody asked her is like everything okay with like Sam because it seems to be like testy exchanges time and time again or like you worry about this partnership. Hasn't had great results this year. What do you think? Blah, blah. She's like, no, no, we're fine. Like, like in a, in a really convincing way. It's like, no, it's a chill out. Like, we got this. We're good. We know we're good. And it's fine. And this sort of self-belief is pretty cool. And you know who else had that self-belief that was coached by Sam Sumick? Victoria Azarenka. Yeah, she yeah. does. You yeah. know, like, even when the results didn't seem to back up... <laughs> The swagger, the swagger was still there. And I think that there is something about that that is a common thread with Garbina Muguruza. No, I totally agree with that. And I think that, like you said, it seems like the beginning for her, I'm not saying she's going to go run off and win a, a right. Garbina slam, <laughs> uh, but she is someone who is absolutely here to stay and was legit. And we knew the, she was legit. And, and she's she, the first of yeah. that generation. Petra is part of the Aga generation, the Caroline generation, you know, the Vika generation. Kerber, part of that generation, but of that 22, 21, 20 generation, that is... Uh, guys and girls. You guys and girls. Garbina Muguruza, the first to break through. So it's good for her that um, she did it. I think she's got a lot of... It's just going to be a big deal. I mean, the thing is, especially the way she did it at a, at a slam that's the most important in her country, being the French Open, Roland Garros, as they call it, in Spain, 
winning big over Serena, convincingly straight sets. It was kind of a knockout, it felt like, in the way she delivered it. And, you know, yeah. we were having this discussion the other day. When's the last time that you remember Serena Williams was beat in and a we, final? Like, beaten. Not not given up, like, you know. And we should go to Serena now, because Serena, um, the, the thing that I, the night before, both of us picked Garbinia to win yes. this match. I think it was pretty clear. Gar- Serena Most was people so, in the press room picked Garbinia to win. Yeah, so Serena was so far off of her best in this in the, in the last two rounds that I was like, if she can't get it back, she'll play better, and she'll play better, but I didn't think it'd be enough. And then once I saw her in the actual match, getting it to, when she got back to four all in the first, I was like, oh, Serena's got this. Right. It was like, what happened in Wimbledon final? I think Garbino was also have an early break, 4-2, I think, 4-1, 4-2, and Serena climbed back and went on a run. And I was like, here we go again, here comes Serena, blah, blah, blah. But... Ruguruza didn't bend. Ruguruza stayed right with it. Stayed, never, never blinked. She never panicked. Yeah. She really didn't. I mean, yeah, there was a double fault here. And you had one game. Or double fault. She had couple, she, I think she had seven in the match or something yeah. like that. I mean, she was pretty high clip, but she just kept backing herself. Like, it was it was super impressive. And when, again, you talk about that generation of the 20 to 22s, 23s, um, who have scored big wins, Sloan. Obviously, beating Serena at the Australian Open, uh, and then Garbinia. I don't think Genie's had a big marquee win, marquee results. Yeah, but not not the one win. Not marquee yeah. wins. Um, Maddie has Venus, but that doesn't really count. No. So, so Maddie doesn't have it either. Benchich obviously has it in the 18s. I mean, you know, beating Serena in Toronto last year, but. Of the players that have the marquee big, big stage wins, it's a very short leash. Uh, sorry, a short list. Not a leash. And a so leash, if you want it to be. At, no, but, but this now, logger is kicking in. I so, so let's let's go to let's, let's bark our way over to Serena though, because Serena was again one match from tying Steffi Graf. Again, came up short against a player against whom she had a winning record, if not a dominant record. And like she, she was pretty dominant against Kerber. Kerber, that was a big surprise that. She was able to reverse that, but yeah. the, the Muguruza matches have been tough. So that she lost to Muguruza itself is not shocking. But what is shocking is that Serena is not closing at these tournaments. And she's played three three biggest finals that she played this year. She lost. Indian Wells, uh, Australia, French Open. She made it to all three, and she didn't close the deal. First time she's lost three finals, Courtney, since? 2004. The only other time that she's lost three finals was 2004. She's never done it other than... 2004 and now 2016. And Serena Williams in 2004 lost to Maria Sharapova twice, Wimbledon final as well as WTA championships. And she was hurt. No, she was hurt. And then also to Lindsay Davenport in LA. So those were the three finals there. We're just into June. And so it's a different look for Serena. I think they're, I'm not saying, I'm not not hitting panic button per se, but but what I I am saying, it is notable, and I do think that Serena, whether it's the 22 pressure, I don't really buy that per se. I just think there's something about her that's not. Able, I think, first of all, her. I will say, I don't think her best is what it was. I think whatever her ceiling is for her best play is lower than it was at her peak. She's 34 years old. Okay. This is natural. This is something that's not something I need to be ashamed of. I'm not trying to insult her and knock her, whatever. She is not as fast as she used to be. She is not as consistent as she used to be at her best. And she can get beaten when she couldn't get beat before. She got kind of hit off the court a little bit of Muguruza. Or like, Muguruza was able to match power for power with her. And never, Serena wasn't able to assert her her will. Even backed it up to yeah. Putin Seva. Yeah. In the quarterfinals, Putin Seva was a mess. Took her three sets, and there's no business going three sets against Putin Seva was five points from the win. And you know, and, and Serena was able to, to 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 capitalize and come back. And, and Putin Seva admitted she was a little bit inexperienced and still learning. And maybe you know she she pulls that one around. Kiki Burton's Kiki Burton's with a calf tear. As it now turns out, he yeah. pulled out of uh, uh, yeah, Bosch with a, a as an MRI revealed that she had a tear in her calf. She had Serena on the ropes, you know. I mean, a straight set match, but she was right there. Those at least seemed yeah. to me. Those to me seemed at least ones where like Serena, Serena can kind of seem to be like flirting with how bad she can play and still survive against sure. against players she doesn't fear. She's not and as both, right. She's not as skilled as Novak is, and we'll get to Novak later. But Novak is incredibly skilled at finding exactly the ten percent better than his opponent. Like, you know, in the early rounds, he's never really, like, crazy impressive. He just gets the job done and gets it done, and then he elevates when it gets to the semis and, and finals. Um, Serena's... It's, Serena it's plays a, lives a little more dangerously sometimes. And I think that, yeah, so I think that Serena did do that, and I think I never really doubted, with the exception of Putin's because the score got so close to losing that match. 
that I was like, well, is she actually going to lose a Putin Seva? Like, I have my upset alert tweet ready. Like, what is going on here? So there's a Putin Seva, huh? It would have been a whole thing. I did not have the upset tweet ready because I was like, it's not happening. It was a whole it's thing. It's not happening. It was a whole thing. Burns, yeah, I always thought she kind of pull it out, yeah, wasn't letting yeah, it quite there, and she, and she didn't. But against Muguruza, she's on this big stage, big occasion, and she just can't close the deal, and that's, that's the weird thing. And I... As much as everyone, and I obviously have huge respect for Serena, still think she's the best player in the world, power rankings, if needs to be. But the fact is, if she doesn't win Wimbledon, she will have not defended all four Grand Slam titles she held. Um, and it, it's a moment of truth a little bit for her in some ways, in that I just, I don't think it's completely inevitable that she ties and breaks Steffi Graf's record the way it once was. You're making a face. You, you I think disagree. it is? I disagree. I think it's inevitable that Serena I think will. it gets I harder. She... I understand that, and I do. I do agree with you 100 percent that the gap is closing. Yeah. But I think that, that this year has shown that more so than last year. I think the Vinci loss was really fluky in a lot of ways to me. That's my take on it. It was the pressure of everything, and she freaked out. Okay, against Vinci because she was too matches away from doing something that like no one's done since Steffi Graf. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I I call a mulligan on that one. I understand you're shutting down the season and, and uh, regrouping. Not being able to, to come back against Kerber, getting losing in straight sets That's against, the main one. against Victoria Azarenka in Indian Wells, losing to Svetlana Kuznetsova in Miami, and then looking a bit fatigued in a lot of ways. And the, the worrisome thing about Serena right now, she had, I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, because but I've written them a bunch of times on, on the WTA site, of what Serena's point ranking point differential was at the start of the season, what it was this time last year versus what it was now. The number one ranking was up in the air here in Paris. Yeah. Well, not here in Paris, but in Paris. It was in play. Or not in Paris. If Kerber had made a deep run, if, Mugru, if, if sorry, if Radvanska had... We didn't think Radvanska would, but Radvanska had a better French than anybody expected. But to still, be frank, yeah. I didn't make a big deal out of it because I wasn't sure that Kerber and Radvanska were going to... They would have to completely outperform themselves yeah. in Paris in order to, to put that, that... to make a charge. But... Her lead over Muguruza as they go into, uh, not into Wimbledon, as things could change in the next couple weeks, but right now is less than 2,000. And she has 2,000 to defend, obviously, in uh, Wimbledon. Muguruza obviously has final points as well. And then right behind them, they've got Redvanska and they have Kerber. I, I asked Serena about this as early as, as Rome because I saw her, her lead is shrinking. She's not playing a full schedule or a and super, she's not a super overloaded a full schedule. schedule. In order to peak for the big tournament, and, 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 and I said Serena and all credit to her, she's held the number one ranking for over three straight years. Is keeping this ranking a priority of yours? Is this something you're scheduled to do? And she said no. She said I've had it. It's been great. My goal Fair is the big tournaments, and that's fine. And that's totally fine. Um, we use the number one ranking and the ranking points as a there is a statistical measure of the gap that is shrinking. Yeah, no, completely. And, and some of it is obviously because she shut down her season last year and Aga caught up and so did Muguruza. Singapore is a lot of points. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, Muguruza had that tear through Asia, so she caught up a lot of points too, and we're seeing the crux of it all go down now. But and if Serena plays a more full Asian schedule and plays the final, she'll have massive points to pick up there. But... The gap is shrinking, and then the group behind her is getting better. Um, they're still inconsistent, and they need to get better with that. But they, at their peak, they're still getting better. And, and I think, especially. And, and I think that you know there there are little extraneous excuses that you can point to, right? Like uh, at Wimbledon, Serena had to play four straight. Yeah. Days. That's not easy. For and the French Open. Yeah, yeah, the French. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The French Open. No, that that's absolutely right, and that is a caveat. I mean, she was a little bit. She didn't have an extra gear, maybe, that she didn't hit uh, in, the, in the French Open that she might have hit otherwise. And we can get, if you want to pivot to the men's champion right now, of course. Uh, we can do that for sure. Let's talk some Novak. Let's talk with Novak Djokovic, who, who also, if he had lost, there were going to be, there could have been explanations if he had been, able, if he had run out of gas in the final, if he had played three straight days uh, between his fourth round quarter and semi, he got a day off before the final, which was good for him and good for the tournament. But uh, in the rain, I mean, he had a he had a, a draw that opened up with the absence of Rafael Nadal for sure. Like we said, we debated if that would make a difference in the tournament or not. You said yes, and I think you were right because he he got to play dominant team and just rolled dominant team in the semis. Team. Did you like, go out there on Long Lawn for that match? Because uh, so so Novak Djokovic, world number one, going for history and whatever, plays Dominic Team out on Suzanne Long Lawn on a day where there was not supposed to be 
a men's semifinal any match. Any singles matches, yeah. Or any singles matches, right. So they, they sold tickets for 20 euro, I believe you bought and a few. I bought them for 10. I wound up okay. getting one for a uh, uh, colleague's daughter, Chris Clary's daughter was in town, so I got one for her. So I saw they were sale of 10, I was like, oh my gosh, like 10 euro, I'm not, I, don't, I don't need a ticket personally, but and I gave a couple away on the NCR account, so congratulations to everyone else. So sir, semifinal was also on that yeah. court. Yeah, so that's amazing. And so and so Djokovic got to play out there, and he just rolled. And Djokovic, this really did feel like a coronation-type tournament. Like, I mean, the way that it felt like it forced Serena in New York, she didn't get all the way there. but uh, And she got a little bit of coordination with Serena Slam, but not really, because the bigger thing was rolling. For Djokovic, he had this thing. He was the favorite all along, and he just took care of business. With the exception of the first set of the final, where he lost to Andy Murray, which I still don't understand um, how he lost that set. How dare but he, you? But he didn't know. But we are in Scotland. I was out. I was out. I was out at the uh, at the boys' final of Ajay Aliassim. So you got to see uh, Yannick Noah's butt. I saw all of Yannick Noah's butt. Cool. It was great. Uh, not the butt. Well, just the experience. It was a very funny <laughs> moment. I don't. The butt itself was fine. Um, yeah, and uh, lots of the uh, French kid, Geoffrey Blancaneau. Uh, so it was a great match. It was 8-6 in the third. That was really cool. All these like French like teenagers showed up. I don't know if they were his friends. And the Canadian had a lead, right? They had three match points. Oh, so it was, like, it, was, it was heartbreaking. It was great. That's why, that's why Yannick Noah jumped on court, because uh, uh, Felix Auger-Aliassin started to have like, a little bit of a tantrum. And like uh, after he lost, he, like, he threw his rackets on the ground and uh, Yang Noah like jumped on court, like leapt on court to like hug him. But as he like left, his belt was pants, like started sliding down, and he was like mooning the crowd. So he was like hugging this teenager, and it's, uh, it was great. It was a tr- it was a memorable moment for sure. And the tournament didn't have many, so that was great. Um, and then I saw we I was sitting there with uh, Mark Masters of TSN, who is wonderful, just sublimely Canadian person. And uh, and Guy McRae uh, of WTA World Feed fame, fame, and uh, we saw that Djokovic broke it, loved open the match, and I was like, that's what I thought it's would over. happen. I was like, it's over. This is gonna be rolling, and I really thought it would be like a two-two in one situation, and that's what the second, that's what the second, third, and fourth sets turned into. There was a delay, and then Djokovic did it, and Djokovic has been able to bring his best against the other big four guys, the players who he fears, really, really well this year. Uh, the only exception was the Rome final, which he had a ridiculous, so many ridiculous, things, ridiculous, so many things went against him. The late, late semifinal win against Nishikori. Murray Rafa had a cut, the night, the Rafa, Rafa the day before. <laughs> Murray had, had this K- like K- 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 joke draw. He got Pui in the semifinals and the days to the semifinals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything went Murray's way in Rome. And then when it came pushing the show, Djokovic took care of business, and he completed the Novak Slam, the Grand Slam, as as Serena. The Serena won his. As Lindsay Gibbs tweeted, which I appreciated, congratulations to Novak on his first Serena Slam. Because Serena has two. Let's keep it in context. But yeah, I mean, Novak did do it, and it was very awesome of him. Like, congratulations to him. I mean, like he, he, I mean, like I almost feel like he just like the how good he's been. This was like par. Well, that's you know? the thing. He, like, we, we expected this of him. It's the Denny Green. Yeah. He is what we thought he was, which we is the number one good. player in the world, the best player on clay at the moment, dominant and increasing the gap. Talk about ranking point, please. My God. No, it's ridiculous. I mean, it would be much bigger if Andy Murray hadn't done so well. Yeah. Because Andy Murray's actually having an amazing... As a number two, he made, he, he made a... Courtney is really obsessed with this idea that Andy Murray will get to lose all four Grand Slams this year. And, and the, the Wimbledon Olympic, final. And the Olympic, Olympic final, final yes. Yeah, and get the sil- calendar silver slam. I've <laughs> already asked people, I was like, who's the last person that got, has anybody ever gotten the silver slam? Is that, is, no? Okay, this is the no. milestone. Yeah, Venus lost four in a row to Serena. Yeah. Um, calendar? Non-calendar. During the, calendar. during the first three of Non-calendar. So much harder to lose the back-to-back Wimbledon Justine, and Justine made all four slam finals in 06 and lost three of them. Well, she won one, and Amy she Murray can't do that. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We're in Edinburgh. You're going to get yourself beaten up, lady. I'm not sure. We had a cab driver who I think would support me on this one. We'll get more to that later. <laughs> but yes, uh, Novak Djokovic is... Great. I mean, he's the first guy to hold all four Grand Slam titles since Rod Laver. And granted, we're in an era of clear homogenization where three guys have been able to... Three guys have career slams in this era. It just never happened before. Like, it three, was, guys have, three guys have career, have, have career slams in the same era. Meanwhile, the surfaces are becoming more uniform. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's hard to yeah. argue. So it, it goes both ways. You can either see it as 
it's so much harder because the field is more difficult. Or you see it as it's so much easier because the, the surfaces aren't crazy different. The way that Novak Djokovic plays to win Roland Garros, and same with Nadal, and the way he played to win Wimbledon are so much more similar than what Agassi or um, who else was Curry Clamor, like Laver or somebody else had to do to get through those tournaments for sure. And so, or even Steffi Graz, probably, or Navratilova. Um, so those those are players that, yeah, have um, benefited from this homogenization. And, but it is still a great era, and he, Novak Djokovic has, like, never had, like, gimme pass. He, he didn't have the toughest pass to the final of this tournament, but he's got tough finals every time. He's only had one final of the Grand Slam. Of all the 12, he's won. Only one was not against a big four player, and that was his first one against Songa that he won in 08. And Songa was playing beaten, amazing that tournament. He beat Federer to get there. He, you know, he, yeah, he, he's, he's always had to beat a big four guy every single time. Nothing, and same with Murray. Murray's had Murray's only played Djokovic or Federer in Slam finals. Here's my <laughs> argument about the Silver Slam and why it is a, going to be an incredible achievement when Andy Murray accomplishes it. Because Andy Murray will have most likely had to have played Novak Djokovic in all five finals that we're talking about here. Novak Djokovic has never had to play Novak Djokovic. Fair point. Far easier path. <laughs> if I was Andy Murray, I'd rather play Andy Murray in a final, but I don't get that opportunity. I have to play number one, number one, Novak Djokovic, who is storming his way into the ultimate and probably the the biggest uh, argument that people are not ready to accept, or we're gonna have to wait and see. But he's marching towards firmly putting himself in the goat conversation. Oh boy, firmly. goat talk, goat firmly. talk. No, I mean, who who's gonna catch him unless he falls injured again, again? I same thing I said about Serena, even more so Novak because Novak is at twelve Grand Slams now. And not that Grand Slam kind of is the only arbiter. I just I disagree with that theory. Well, that's the thing is that, but yeah. he has he's winning Masters at a clip that no one's won the match. He's doing things the emoji just, graphics for Novak are amazing. Insane. They are a pleasure to emoji graphic. This gentleman, it's so great. <laughs> it's so much fun. No, but he wins everything, and his clip of just showing up and winning everything, like that one random like Vesely loss he had in Monte yeah. Carlo, was such an outlier, and it, it seems so normal. Like yeah, a top player shows up, isn't quite ready for a tournament, loses early. It doesn't happen with Novak. Novak makes finals routinely everywhere he shows up to play. He's incredible. Uh, all of it's incredible. He's definitely putting himself, yeah, in like, I don't think he, I don't know, I don't fundamentally think you have to be, have the most grand stands all time to, to be GOAT. Like, for example, I would totally hear arguments for Serena over Steffi, even if Serena never got to 22. I don't, I don't think that, like, like, I think once you're so close within a margin of error, 21, 22, what's the difference? I well, really don't think so. Well, then you go to tour, so. and Steffi destroys her on the tour Serena, level of metrics. But Serena also has 12 doubles Grand Slams, other things. Don't mock the doubles Grand Slams. No, doubles, double, doubles is a real thing. I'm not mocking the doubles Grand Slams, but, like, I'm not going to, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, here, here's where I will I will add the disclaimer. I'm a WTA employee. The tour matters. What you do on the tour level matters. So if Steffi is absolutely blitzing, or even Martina Navratilova is absolutely, she won 18, but destroyed people on the tour. Yeah. I mean, her tour records are insane. I need to get to depth and things. And this is, I'm glad we're having this discussion actually sure. in a bar, because it's like the very classic <laughs> bar school debate that people talk Always, about. Like, yeah. who's the greatest of all time, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we can have shout out if you want. Like, I just, no, 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 I we think... don't have to, but we can like put together the metrics. I mean, because obviously Novak's not done, Rafa's not done, uh, uh, Roger's not done. They, they, they could still continue to write it their could. legacies. We don't know. We don't know what happens. It's what Andy Roddick tweeted. It's like reading three quarters of a book and trying to basically discuss how the book ends. And you're like, well, you don't know how the book ends. You yeah. only read three quarters of it. So, By the way... I- People hire Andy Roddick to do commentary places. Seriously. He has no commentary gig. He's not doing BBC this year. Yeah, how is he not doing BBC? They got Leighton. I don't know. I'd rather have Andy than Leighton. Leighton's good. Leighton is fantastic. Good. But Andy, Andy's funny. Andy is funny. Andy's an entertainer. He's so, like, and he's self-deprecating. Take them both. Take them both. Take them both. Yes, funny. It's not either or. Take them both. Absolutely. That so. panel of Davenport, Roddick, and Lequewitt, that's a fire panel. That's really good. That's emoji 100s. <laughs> All across it. So let's get let's back to Djokovic, though. Djokovic, 
I think both of us were always firmly, I think at least I was, I think you were too, I hope you were too, in the fact that he would win the French Open someday. Yes, I was yeah. inev- it was inevitable. It was inevitable. He was, he was always putting himself in position to do it. I never understood people who didn't think that was going to happen. Same with, same with Roger and both of them. Like, and I will not hear arguments for either of them. Like, oh, but Clay was your weakness. So they didn't have a Clay problem. And I think Roger said this actually very directly at some point. They had a Rafa problem. Not Rafa out and it's easy. Yeah, and so once Rafa... And I don't think any asterisk has to know if went here because he beat Rafa handily at the French Open last we year. We all know. And he's won his last, what, 16 sets against against Rafa? We all know. And we so, all know he's better than Rafa so right no, now. Yeah, right no now. one thought Rafa was going to win that match they played here. No, so no asterisk at all. Federer has a little bit more of an asterisk he won on his, but... He beat Soderling and Nadal couldn't that year. So, whatever. You know what lifetime achievement award? You can't put yourself in the final and losing to one of the greatest clay players of all time. If you didn't have to play that clay player and you win win your first French Open and the heavens open up and God cries, I'd tip my cap. Pretty much. No, I I agree with you there. No, but so Djokovic is winning things. Do you, let's just go right to this point. Do you think he'll win the calendar slam? (laughs) Ask me after one of them. That's such a cop-out. No. It, do I... Uh, calendar or golden? Calendar. Start calendar. Start with calendar. I'll go 51-49 calendar. Okay. I will go higher than that. I'll go like 60-40. But... Which is really high. I think that's a chance to no calendar slam. But I think the harder one is going to be Wimbledon. I, oh, I thought that... This, I said that... I, I know I said this on the show last year. Uh, end up, at some point before... And I thought Novak had a better shot of winning the French Open this year than at Wimbledon. Wimbledon is the one where I see he can get hit off the court. Wimbledon is where he can play a Ronich who can just zone and beat him. He can play a Kyrgios who can zone and beat him. He can play an Anderson who came with, who took him to five cents this year. I mean, he's less in control of his own destiny on a fast court that plays Absolutely. fast. And he is on play. But yeah. at the same time, the gap is still big. I don't disagree. I don't. You know what I, I mean? Yeah. Like that's Andy Murray, and the gap is also wide in between two and three. Murray is a clear number two now in a way he wasn't. Because better has been so out of it this year. Um, it's a shame that, like, just because, like, Novak's so good, so obviously he should be the focus of things, but, like, Andy Murray is having an incredible year, you guys. And yeah. an incredible 12 months. And it's really frustrating that people don't recognize that, but I'll just step back from No, I, I completely agree with that, too. I mean, no, Andy's been really good, and Andy's... Run was incredible. He had he had he was terrible in the first week. He lost two, uh, first two sets with Roddick Stepanek. Nearly was in trouble because Roddick Stepanek got the dream draw of getting win two sets and getting a night off. A one night shootout. Yeah, a one set shootout. Yeah, one yeah. and a half sets, whatever. And he, he came close, couldn't do it. Didn't never expect him to close. I always thought he'd be an annoying opponent. Matthias Borg, but Matthias Borg came out and played well, and Andy was awful that day and pulled himself out of it to win in five. As after we talked about this in the mid show, but then, but then he beat Stan Wawrinka in a fantastic, I mean, not match, but like performance. His performance against Wawrinka was impressive. And this goes to part of my own. We we got to talk about we opened the show with this about just like how the tournament, where it got rough. Like I never, I never felt like I got to settle into that match. The Vavrinka, just from my own personal point of view, the Vavrinka Murray, because it was simultaneous yeah. semifinals, which just like the which like you yeah. keep watching things, and um, and the women's finals had just finished, so like doing press for the women's semifinals rather, yeah. um, just running around. I never felt like I got to sink my teeth into that, and that's where the tournament felt unsatisfying in some way. Is that just like the schedule? Block everything up, and it felt like you're getting matches done to get them done, not to have here. Let's enjoy this. Yeah, there wasn't. Yeah, that's fair. It wasn't like matches were being served on the silver platter. It was like let's get this done so that we can. Yeah, and even like I will say this about Novak's run to the final is that it just felt very like conveyor belt. Yeah, let's just get this done. And, and, and you know and then there wasn't much and then lo- and so much of that everything without had to do with the weather and and the scheduling but it, yeah it just didn't feel like this tournament had time to breathe like a result would happen I was telling you this last night a result would happen and typically at a major you have 48 hours that's part of why to, we to tell the story to investigate the story to track the people down that you need to speak to to put it in context to put it in context I mean, we didn't have it it was like Shelby Rogers won a great match by the way she plays at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock a.m. tomorrow morning that's all I got for you and that's part of why we didn't do any more shows the second week yeah. of the it was uh, impossible NCR. it was just there was no time to let things sit and so the schedule for we did, we did 13 in Australia and 3 in Paris and we tried our best, but we would not. There was nothing that we could have discussed that would have lasted beyond the next five hours that we after we published it or whatever. So yeah, so it was t- it was a tough turnaround that way, and that made it tough. And, but, I, but I do yeah. think 
they managed to finish on time. Kudos to them. I think it's a big deal. I don't think Monday finals should be accepted as things. Monday finals suck. Yeah. Everything happened in a weekday when everyone's at work. That's not good. Yeah. So they did everything to get there. Great. They were desperate to get a roof. Maybe, but at the same time, for a century without a roof, so I'm not a roof like. Uh, and they got it done without a roof. Yeah. In one of the, in the first washout in 16 years, the worst weather that Paris has probably seen. The Seine flooding. was flooding. Talk about the flooding, Courtney. Yeah, it wasn't. It was crazy. Like I said, like uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know, uh, I guess a week ago, week and a half ago, I I was down on the Seine across from the Eiffel Tower, uh, boarding a boat to interview Lee Knox, and Ben and I just walked past there last night after dinner, and the place where I was standing to board the boat, if I were to be down there right now, it would be up to my neck. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, it, it's, it's crazy. And the boat wouldn't have been able to go because you couldn't, wouldn't have been able to clear the, the bridges. This was unprecedented rain that this tournament got, and yet they finished on time. Was it ideal? Absolutely not. Just talk to Ago Rivanska, Simona Halep, uh, even Serena Williams, and Venus having to play four matches back to back to back, or four days. Venus was outspoken about having to play. Venus the other well. player. She didn't have to play, but she was like, Florida should not have had to play in that weather, and it was miserable. And that's the thing that goes back to what I said earlier about about the Lambeau Field stuff. I mean, like tennis is not a sport for all climates. And I remember being at French Open qualifying in 2014, watching a match. I want to say it was like a Ryan Harrison match, and it was raining like heavily, like or like significant drizzle, and they kept playing, and no one was having fun. It was like we're just playing because this match has to get finished, but like it's awful for everyone. What's the point? When the competition side of it takes, you know, and I kept thinking this a lot during the rain delays and during times where players were playing late into their matches and the score lines were tight or maybe they weren't tight or just marginally tight and, you know, the, the supervisor was saying just play on. I think of like that Gerges Puig match where literally they are playing into the night. There was no rain issues but they were playing into the night and Gerges was serving to stay in the match and they were like, let's just play one more game. In other words, Yulia Gerges, you will serve and we'll call the match. She gets broken, she loses the match. I mean, it's like, at what point do the weather and the light issues start to imp- and then the need to just get matches done and not impact the schedule actually genuinely impact the competition that you're seeing on the court? That's where I have an issue with it. We got a question from a listener, Ian Warren, Waza in Sydney, very, very Aussie handle there. Who asks, was this the worst slam ever? Uh, sure, finals weekend was good, and the re- but the rest, future concerning without without Federer and Rafa, future is concerning. No roof and no play for a global TV audience is unacceptable. Broadcasters pay to televise live tennis, subscribers pay to watch. Uh, so, I mean, it was not great. This was not the best slam that's ever happened. I'm not going to dispute that at all. Like I said before, a lot of things about the slam magic, you know, even just down to the fashion, which is so superficial, but all those things were missing, and it was a, a, a adversely played slam. So, slam played in adverse conditions. Credit them getting down on time. That's a big deal. That matters. Good on them for that. But yeah, it wasn't fun. I mean, it was not a great slam. Um, and it definitely sucks, like, for NBA. NBC. NBC, the washout day was the second Monday, which yeah. is Memorial Day. Memorial day. And Massive. that's one of the biggest days for tennis in the U.S. each year. Federal holiday, get everyone home to watch. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge deal. And so for them not to get that, it, it sucks for tennis. It sucks for American tennis. A lot of people could have become tennis fans the day they didn't get to. It was going to be both three and minutes playing back-to-back that day. That's rough. That sucks. I mean, is there anything they could do? Not really. I don't think they... I mean, with the exception, maybe they... I don't think it should have started in the when it was raining. That was the big complaint of Goffman and yes. Galbis who walked up court. When it's actively drizzling, playing on is one thing, but actually making you start is a different thing. Yeah. Simona Halep and Aga Redvonska walked out and there were umbrellas out. I mean, you can understand their, their, their stress levels. But they're like, what, what, the, what, are we, what are we doing right now? You know? I think that, yes, I mean, I will say this, and I've said it repeatedly, I think I said it in the last podcast. People do need to understand. I know that people, not everybody's come to Roland Garros, not everybody's come to the French Open to enjoy it, whatever. The grounds are in the midst of a residential area. Yeah. And I know this. We live in that. We stay in that residential area. Boulogne-Villancourt. 20 minutes away. There is a preschool across the street from Roland Garros. As you walk to site, you hear the sound of children screaming in the mornings. It's very adorable and fantastic. But it is a residential neighborhood. In the past, you know, obviously within tennis history, 
this has been a small tournament. Let's not pretend that Grand Slams have always been internationally attended, even, even massively it, televised things. They even, have not even, been. Even into the 70s and 80s for French Open, it was like behind Rome. And, and it yes. was a grand, it was the part of the Grand Slam. The Italian Open was a bigger deal, and the French Open um, had less prize money, had less status, and, it, but, and that's okay. And, like, and I think that it's a question for tennis. Do they want to have these mega tournaments? Do you want to have the, what what you lose if you put the French Open out by Euro Disney out in the way out suburbs? Which is something that, well, has been that, discussed. that the FFT has discussed in or the French Open to is it wanted to keeping the tradition and everything of having it there? I side with tradition, mostly. I think, even if you can't get the root, it's worth keeping the tradition on some level. Maybe maybe all that... I, I haven't, in my tennis fandom, I haven't lived through a time when there was a venue switch at a Grand Slam, and it has happened. I mean, Melbourne Park is now the site Forest for... Forest Having Kuyong... Forest Hills to the current Billie Jean King Center in Flushing Meadows. Uh, yeah, those things have happened, and the tournaments survive and thrive. So maybe they could. But I think losing the urban feel of it, I don't know. Maybe it would be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic about but, it. But I, I would also say, like, in this current age of, you know, everything's immediate. People have, something happens, and people have outrageous reactions to it. Absolutely. Again, One first rain yeah. out. 16 years. 16 years, you guys. And they still finish the tournament on time without a roof and without lights. Was it ideal? No. Is any tournament going to be ideal? No. You install a roof on the center court, and you then you go and screw over all the lower-ranked players who have to play and wait out their matches or get their matches rained out on Long Lawn or Court 1. This is just kind of how it is. To me, for the French Open, so much... I, I kind of side on tradition. I don't, I don't want to just get picked up and move to some soulless... A grand complex. That is something that I would not. I would never want for this tournament. It is small. It is quaint. It has, in a lot of ways, encapsulated tennis, which is that in a lot of the sport, which has gone international and gone global, and isn't just about the four Grand Slam countries, and has international fans everywhere. It's I, outgrown. I its love tradition. I love that. Center court, we want to still center court, like the, yes. where the lines are on that court, or where they work for Billy Jean King and Bill Tilden and all that stuff. That's awesome to me. Um, and I love that uh, this uh, Philip Chatrier court was built for a Davis Cup tie back when you had the four Mousquetaires right. in French tennis and Rene Lacoste and all that stuff. And they were the reasons there. I think that's part of what makes tennis great. I mean, it's working to be held back by its history, no doubt. Absolutely. Especially when it comes to, you know, this, this, this culture of deferring to past ideals about tennis, whether it's having whole articles written about whatever John McEnroe pops off about, <laughs> or whatever else. I mean, the sport can be trapped in ruts that it should move past, and no other sport gets caught in that sort of uh, cobwebs. But but for tennis, I mean, architecturally, that part I wouldn't shy away from. I mean, I would, I, I would listen to offers to move the French Open, but I would be very inclined to keep it where it is, if at all possible. Ruth would be great, sure. Opposition, as our landlady Chantal said, um, we were, I was talking to her about construction in French. I mean, she always speaks French. It's tough. But eventually she was saying, like, I understand they want a roof, but we want to build for it's a nice place to live all year. Roland Garros is only 15 days a year. It's like, the same yeah. argument that the residents of Key Biscayne make about the Miami Open and why yeah. the issues have come up about the Miami Open is that at the end of the day, you have to, as a little suburb, host thousands and thousands of people spilling out into your streets, you know, for 15 days out of the year, and then just because you're scared of a little rain, you're going to then, again, additionally, tax emotionally and just, like, kind of in, like, their life, people because you want to do construction 24 hours a day, like... That's not going to work out, and, and it's 15 days. It's 15 days. Can I get to one other 15-day point? Um, this is a question from Hurley Tennis, who asks, uh, I guess it was mentioned on Tennis Channel, we don't get to watch, we didn't see any of the yeah, broadcasts. They, they didn't pipe so, it in. So we don't, we don't know. We've gotten questions about how the Tennis Channel broadcasts were, how much were, if there was overlap on TC+, things like that. Those are fair questions that I'm not sure how to answer, because I, I wish it wasn't there. That's a stateside question. Discuss that amongst yourselves. No, seriously, but it's a, it's a worthwhile topic to evaluate their, their coverage. I'm not, they're not able to do it. No. Um, but the question we got from Hurley is, uh, I guess, about tennis channel commentators, Jim Courier, John Wertheim, said they want to have the tournament start on Saturday to have three full weekends of tennis. Are you, are you, I, you're against that. Explain the against position. It already starts on Sunday. Why not Saturday? 
it already starts on Sunday, why not Saturday? Because then you push everything forward, you, ta- you penalize and further hurt the tournaments that happen the week before Grand Slams, whether it's the men's or the women's, whether it's Geneva and uh, Nice. And Nuremberg and, and Schaumburg. So you already affect... Nuremberg's lovely, by the way. Exactly. And you, <laughs> and you further impact uh, the tour-level events. So no, I, I, I would not push for a Saturday final, which would mean a Thursday draw. Saturday start, yeah. Saturday, Saturday start, thir- uh, Thursday draw, which means qualifying starts Tuesday. Monday or Tuesday? Monday. It already Monday. starts Monday. It's, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in favor of that, A. B, I'm not in favor of this idea of lengthening slams. Once you start to change the, the, the makeup of the tournament in, in very meaningful ways, we already have a big problem comparing eras. We already simply, let's talk about it. I mean, like, as sports writers, as tennis writers, how many tennis writers have completely whitewashed the way that Grand Slams have been perceived in the past? That they were skippable tournaments. At Margaret Court won 13 Australian Opens that hit more than half of her 24 total, which, back when nobody played there and back when it was only a 32-player draw. Come on, Margaret. Asterisk her. Just saying. Like, you know, we, but we said, we said we were going to compare numbers and we're going to compare this and that. You spread it out. And again, these are suggestions that we're not talking about year after year after year like at Wimbledon years ago where rain genuinely impacted the tournament in meaningful ways year after year after year really we're all we just want to change the Roland Garros because they had the first rain out in 16 years that's ridiculous to me and that is Twitter culture I'm sorry that is social media culture of like a thing happens and everybody panics and everybody thinks the world needs to change it's like calm down if five straight years this happens absolutely you can then go to the FFT you can go to, to, to the government whatever and say things need to change because this has been impacted in a meaningful way for five consecutive years the US opened it with five one day finals or whatever precisely sure. right then it's an issue in this situation everybody needs to calm the F down honestly like it happened once and they still finish on Sunday as convincing as you were, I'm going to disagree. Because I think that, like I said about Memorial Day earlier in the show, I think these chances to showcase tennis for a wider audience at the best level of the Grand Slam, if you can get an extra weekend session of eyeballs on TV, it's so good for the sport, it's worth the cost. I think it is. And if you don't make it like a crap day, the Sunday ticket, the Sunday the slate they offer is full. Anyway. It is so full. What, do you, what do you do? You spread it like the first three rounds okay. over nine days? Here's, a, com- here's a compromise. Here's a compromise. Have a Sunday Saturday start, but have at least one complete day off during the slam. Whether a designated day, sometime, a middle Sunday, whatever you want to call it. Not a Sunday, but a weekday. Something. No? Not into it? Okay. No. There. No. Sound off. Let us know. Hashtag NCR156. <laughs> Anything else about this tournament? Let's get to other miscellaneous about the French Open. Uh, Shelby Rogers, we didn't mention much in the mid show, but she made quarters here. In French Open, we're not here still, but you know what I mean. We, you get it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she made the French Open quarterfinals. That was unexpected, like like crazy. Same as Svetlana Parankova, two players outside top hundred. Great for them. Kiki Burton, semi-finals. Kiki Burton, and I had been really high on Kiki Burton after being in Nuremberg. I saw her play there. She was really good. I was like, and she just seemed like really just like nonchalant about it. And so I was like, ooh, you're like this is a thing. I was like very high on it. She was doing doubles too. She beat the Williamses in doubles. She was doing big things. Um, so I was all in for Kiki uh, there, and she made some odds, and she could have won that match theoretically, but she didn't. But she wouldn't say. But you know, theoretically, <laughs> anything could happen. Hypothetically, 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 yes, technically, no. Uh, so good on Kiki. Are any of those runs, I guess, beyond the finalists, whose status changed most among the WTA players? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, For better or worse, it could be an early loser no, too. It, it, it actually might be, you know, the, it actually might be the player you didn't mention, which is Sam Stozer. Yeah. I think that in terms of what she was able to do, it was the not to say that it was the most impressive run because obviously Kiki Burton beats the number three seed and in Kerber she rolls through that draw. Bachinski. Bachinski, which was massive. That was just shocker to me. Um, and then obviously, you know, Shelby Rogers paved her own way as well. Why? 
I think for me, I did not see that run from Sam Stozer coming. Uh, she had been playing well on clay, but we all know the tropes about Sam, which is that, you know, she's going to lose to Lucy Safarova more often than not. She's going to lose... Safarova was shocking. Yeah, she's going to lose to Simona Hatley, you know what I mean? So for her to get those wins back-to-back, I thought was incredibly per- impressive. The, the Stozer Brook beats Halep was one of the most surprising results in the tournament, I think. Because was good, you yeah. guys. It was really good throughout the tournament. I was, I was impressed in heavy conditions. She's one to watch uh, hardcore Olympics, U.S. Open. She's one to watch. Not during grass. Not during grass. No. <laughs> uh, how about dudes? Dudes, we had a very fun, necessary quarterfinal between Dominic Kane and David Goffin, which is great because they got to play for a chance to be in the top ten. But one match to be number seven. So there were real stakes. And it was an amazing match. That was one of the best matches of the tournament. Goffin team. Uh, team came back from set point down in the second to win it in four after nearly going on two sets to love really really good match team um, plays a Yankovician schedule or like Red Vonskin whatever you want to call it he plays or Pliskovin he plays constantly he's playing this week he's probably playing next week he's playing probably the week after that he plays all the time I don't like it yeah it's not something it's something that needs to be eased off why, why don't you like it Courtney <laughs> There comes a point where you back your talent. There comes a point where you put the pressure on yourself to perform at the biggest tournaments and rely on those tournaments in order to support to get your ranking points and to get your money. I think for Dominic Team, it was incredibly impressive that he made the semifinals with the schedule, the pre the pre clay schedule that he had. You know, I definitely fell into the camp of somebody who thought that he had overplayed and was never going to make the semifinals. So good on him. His but fitness is unreal. It's unreal. Like all the stuff, he's always something we hear about with like him like carrying tree trunks through trunks, the woods yeah, and yeah. stuff. Yeah, but it's real. There comes a point where you you kind of need to bring it at the big tournaments, and this was a great result for him. Obviously, first uh, Grand Slam semifinals. I want to see you broken draw. He didn't be a top ten player. Was, it was a ridiculous draw. I want to see you be. I want to see you making semifinals of Masters tournaments. I don't care if you're winning these. I just don't. You are at that level now where you need to beat the best players to prove that you're a good player. Because otherwise, if you're not, then what are we talking about? He doesn't have a big win yet. No. He does not have a big he four does win. Not. Well, he beat, he beat Federer, but Federer was so hurt in Rome and a complete asterisk. Right. Don't count that. Yeah, he doesn't have the big win yet. He beat, and he beat uh, Nadal. It was awful in that Buenos Aires, Buenos Aires match. Rio, Buenos Aires. Think about the yeah. players, for example, on the women's tour that people dismiss as, oh, you don't have a big win. Who maybe cracked top ten? Who maybe like made top five? And yet, that's not a critique that we give to team. I think we will. I think we just did. There we go. I'm just Consider yourself critique dominant, but you, but you, but you, you burnt. But, you, <laughs> but you're still a good player, and we like you. He's great. I want he, him to do well. I love that. I think I said this in the yeah. show too. But like his earnestness about being a zebra. Everything about him is so earnest and so just like straightforward and so Austrian. It's tremendous. I like all of it. Goffin is doing really well. Goffin yeah. and team. I hope. I hope at least one of them makes it to London. Team's yep. in great position. Team's number five in the race. He should make it. New blood in the ATP is all we've asked for forever and ever. We haven't gotten it. It seems like this year we're poised to. Federer, who pulled out of this tournament, uh, is number 15 in the race right now. He has an uphill battle to stay in the top 10 this year because he's about to defend. He's in Stuttgart this week. and we Taylor Harry Fritz. Congratulations, Taylor. Uh, he is going to play Stuttgart, Halle, Wimbledon, Cincinnati, Olympics, I guess, whatever. He's defending 500 points in Hala for the title there, 1,200 points for the Wimbledon final, 1,000 points in the Cincinnati title, another 1,200 for the U.S. Open final. I mean, he's got points. I mean, like all of his points. So he could very easily, if he doesn't, if he's not at full strength, and who knows if he is, he could be out of top 10. Like six or seven, six. He's split. He's split. Did not have a good play court season. No. He's been hurt. I mean, he's had a bad... He was number two in the race after Indian Wells. Yeah. Now number six or so. So, yeah, so it's interesting interesting times to, uh, to be alive and to see all these things happening. Doesn't so fe- true. Doesn't Federer make you feel alive? You made a face there, but I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Sure. Anything else in the French Open before we wrap this up? No. Let's get to your rant, rave, Courtney. <laughs> Let's just go right... Hold up. Let me, let me first outro the show. Thank you guys very much for listening to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along while you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. We put up threads for every show, and people discuss them sometimes. We'd love for that to happen more. Please do. Uh, meet your NCR tribe. You are good people, all of you. We know that. Find each other. Find each other. Reach out and touch someone in NCR land. 
Uh, and we also have Twitter. We can also discuss things. No challenge to make. Uh, sorry, at NCR underscore tennis on Twitter. That's a cool place to find us as well. Communicate with us. Send us questions, longer questions, comments, whatever, by email. No challenge demanding at gmail.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or any podcast app, which averts all the social media we just discussed, and you can get episodes delivered automatically to you right away. Find out when there's new episodes whenever you can. It's a cool thing to do. iTunes, leave us reviews there. Other apps are cool too. Executive producers of No Challenge Remaining are Pancho Resendis of TennisBoss.com and Tao Woolley. Courtney. Ben. Rant to me. <laughs> Alright. So, here's the thing. So, at Roland Garros, if you follow me on Twitter, you're aware of this. I found in the Roland Garros main store uh, a set of Roland Garros engraved silver patonk balls. Patonk is the French version of basically bocce, what we have in the States. It's a little bit different. But they were beautiful. They were these heavy, gorgeous, gorgeous, like silver balls engraved Roland Garros on all three, plus the little orange as the color of clay, little starter ball that you use as your marker that you, you throw. So excited about it. I bought them with Reem Avalil, and we were like, I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to truck these things all over Europe for the next five weeks, but I think it's worth it. I'm going to buy them. They cost 60 euro. So I bought them. This morning I'm packing, and I'm like, okay, I'm a little concerned about the excess baggage fees because it was a short flight on uh, Welling, and I wasn't sure what the situation was, so I didn't want to put them in my checked baggage because I was like, that's just going to tip it over. And you were barely under it. Yeah, they would have tipped, tipped it over. They would have tipped it over. I was 0.1 Ks under, kilograms under. So I put them in uh, my backpack, my rolly bag or whatever. And so we get, we check everything. Turns out the woman didn't really care about the excess baggage because Ben was over by a few kilograms. Oh, like a solid kilogram and a half. Yeah. yeah. So, but we didn't have to pay extra, extra baggage. Um, she took everything. We go through security. You know, going through, goes to the machine. Guy turns to me and basically asks me in French, like, "Do you have the tonk balls in your your check luggage?" It's like, "Yeah." I was like, "I was like, yeah, they're pretty cool." You want to see? Them? Like, I just was like, "Yeah." Uh, and they're like, "Yeah, no, you can't bring that on onto the plane." Apparently, the tonk balls in France are considered a a weapon, possible weapon, a, a possible weapon on the plane. Now, the tonk balls are very heavy. I mean, they're, they they are like a like a croquet ball, but stainless steel. So, legit. I So, the guy told me that. He was t- explaining to me the rationale. And, like, I kind of got it. I was like, yeah, sure. But what is it? Like, exactly. If you apply it to that, like, we what immediately, is it? We immediately started looking around the airport terminal we were in and saw that Yeah, I didn't want to tweet these... this, but we were basically for two hours making up <laughs> weapons that we could put together in... in so much more deadly than a tonk ball. Although I realized if you put a tonk ball in a sock, you got a good weapon. But, for sure. And also but, a tonk ball, this is the other justification I will for that, the fact that they were taken away, is that a tonk ball could potentially, if you threw it hard enough, break one of the windows. Oh, maybe. And then that's a whole disaster in and of itself. Eh, maybe. Okay. So I get it. I wasn't arguing with the guy. I was like, you're right. It is a throwable object. It is a potential weapon in the hands of a ninja. This Someone will take this plane down. But I'm walking around, and there are kids carrying, like, you know, checkerboards. Like, these big wooden full checkerboards that are, like, three feet by Anything three feet. Anything is a weapon if you want to Everything is a weapon. Here, meanwhile, so I go to the store that's by the gate. Tons of lighters for sale that you could buy. I have a picture of it. Uh, there are scarves also in the, in the in the thing. There's also a duty-free shop where you can buy vodka. I can make a Molotov cocktail on the plane if I wanted to. Like, and so that's my issue. It's just like it's not that the things were taken away. It's just a thing. I didn't need freaking patonk ball. I don't know anybody who plays patonk. It was like just like a fun thing, and it was like, but it was literally the only thing that like made me happy in Paris the entire time. Other than my friends, I was so happy. And Paris took them away. But it's just the logic behind it. And and just the assumption that because you have it, it was like in the bottom of your bag, your rolling bag, where you're going to put in the overhead, that like the assumption that you, it was a plausible thing that you would try to use this as a weapon on the flight, it's not going to happen. I'm like, dude, I'm an Asian kid with a U.S. passport. Like, like, 
not going to happen. But, I mean, all that being said, again, I don't care that they've taken away. I don't care that, like, whatever. I mean, I understand France is under a certain level of security watch. They're incredibly, you know, vigilant in the same way that the U.S. was vigilant post 9-11. But it just doesn't make sense. It's like, I don't understand why liquids are not allowed on planes. But seriously, liquids are not allowed on planes. Like, good luck getting any liquid on a plane. You know what I mean? Shout like, out, by the way, to Ron Garros for not having a terrorist attack this year. Wasn't sure that was going to happen. So good for them. It was a little nerve-wracking. That's maybe my rage. Yeah. No, seriously. I mean, All it the was, security was see whatever it was. I don't want to critique it, you know, whatever. But it wound up working, so good for them. That's all fine. Uh, yeah. Uh, do I have a rant besides that? Oh, and just my rave while Ben thinks, in addition to my rant. Please subscribe to Racket Magazine. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to the Kickstarter. There's still, still two weeks left. There's more fun little rewards. There's posters. There's T-shirts. Um, there's a cool designer who's making like a like a um, that is making like Melbourne-based uh, posters. So if you're in Australia, we'll ship those to you. Um, there's T-shirts. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in addition to the $50 subscription. But we need your help again, just so that you guys understand how Kickstarter works. If they do not meet their goal of $50,000 doesn't happen so dream they need, dies. Yeah, yeah. They, they need to hit the fifty thousand dollars so please do what you can spread the word it would be much appreciated so my rave would just be that we are in scotland because of kickstarter we'll get to this more later but we are here doing a special episode from scotland and we're really excited about it and it's gonna be awesome and so i think i just want to thank you guys bravely for again uh, retroactively as we did before but your support of ncr uh, this is our first time doing a really dedicated trip out of the Kickstarter funding, so that's going to be awesome. We have high hopes for what we're going to be able to do here. Stay tuned. You'll like it. It'll be fun. You don't want to talk about your negotiation in Paris? Oh, no. <laughs> uh, we, Kickstarter also did, did postcards. That was a whole thing. It, it did not, I don't want to go too into it, but it did not, it did not end well. We haven't sent out any yet, so if you're checking our mailbox, don't be yet. We'll let you guys know when we send them out. They have not been sent Most out definitely. yet. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Leave it with that. And with that, we'll see you guys next time. Bye bye. See you later. Mary and Jimmy were both very young, but as much in love as two people could be. And all they wanted was to be together and share that love eternally. They went to their boat.